What's up, guys? It's Eddie Laughlin, co-founder of Shotgun House Coffee Roasters, and you're listening to Building Something Out of Nothing, a small business podcast right here in San Antonio. Today's guest is Jeff Chandler, CEO of the wildly popular Hot Dotty Burger Bar. We sit down at the company's slick Austin offices and talk about Jeff's background in the food industry, the origins of Hot Dotty, how and why he became CEO in 2016, what sets Hot Dotty apart in the crowded burger market, and how he took the founder's entrepreneurial spirit, his knowledge for building teams and systems, and a shared passion for investing in people, and scaled Hot Dotty from six locations to 33 and counting. Enjoy. All right, so I'm sitting here with uh, Jeff Chandler, CEO of Hot Dotty Burger Bar in Austin, Texas. Well, I'm kind of in about eight states now, but we're sitting in Austin, Texas at their corporate office, kind of right off Riverside, correct? It's right by that Joe's Crab Shack. Absolutely. Everybody recognizes that, which you, you were telling me is about to be torn down. But um, yeah, just wanted to thank you for having me out here and coming on the podcast. Huge fans of Hot Dotty. Uh, used to live here in Austin, uh, moved to San Antonio, and now there's locations in San Antonio, so Super pumped to have you on, man. Thanks a lot. Eddie, you're welcome. Happy to be here and, and uh, happy to talk with you. So what goes on kind of here at the corporate office, by the way? It's yeah. a real, real nice space. You said you just renewed the lease, and so you've been here nine, ten years, something like that. Hopdotty's been here for nine years. Uh, we've grown and evolved within the space. We, we're currently sitting in what we call our lounge. We realize that we, we really aren't, this isn't really a corporate office, right? We don't really bill ourselves as corporate people. We view ourselves as men and women just trying to do great things and help support our teams out in the field. And so we really talk about this as our home office. And the lounge that we're sitting in really is kind of a, a, an output of this idea that we're in a creative space. We're in the people space. We shouldn't be sitting in sterile boardrooms and conference rooms. We should be sitting in spaces that allow us to interact, you know, in a real natural way. So uh, that was the purpose behind this lounge. Very, very nicely decorated. I feel like I'm in, uh, what is it, room service vintage over in North Loop. Very yeah. nicely done. I was <laughs> envious you. of this couch as soon as I walked in. Yeah. It was really cool. Um, but yeah, so you've been with the company since 2016, correct? Correct. Okay, cool. I wanted to talk about your background a little bit because you've been in the restaurant industry and kind of just like management and like leading, helping companies grow essentially for... 20, 30 years, something like yeah, that, that, correct? That's right, and thanks for giving away my age. Yeah, sorry uh, about that. No, I, I'd grown up in the restaurant business. Uh, my father was a pub and tavern o- owner back in the day in the 70s, and you know, so I grew up early on um, doing everything in and around the restaurant business, from pulling quarters out of the couch uh, in our booths to refilling condom machines in the restrooms. Uh, whatever it took, I was kind of that guy. And so I, I grew up in the space, loved it, and, um, you know, over a period of years, uh, had a knack really to work with founders and founder driven organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really it, it, it was, came natural to me. It was fun. And so you eventually went to play D one football, right? It was that at the university of Washington, university of Washington. Wow. Right. That's cool. What I position did you play? Uh, believe it or not, I was an offensive center about 70 pounds ago. Wow. Um, played back in the day for a famous coach by the name of Don James. Wow. Uh, that led us to a national championship and multiple Rose Bowl appearances. And so very fortunate to play at a great time. And it was really interesting. I think, you know, the fact that I played football, it was fun. Uh, but what I realized today is I learned more playing that organized sport under a great leader, under a great coach. I learned more that makes me, I think, somewhat successful today mm-hmm. than I did in the business school, right? Wow. Because it was more about real life, building teams, how you treat people, 
a lot of the discipline and work ethic and some of the, the uh, internal things that I can look back to and said, I, I think I learned more doing that than going to college. Well, and what the leadership takes in that organization in order to succeed. And you can see like real life results right. uh, in that. And that's really, really interesting. Yeah. So I was wondering, do you use those same like things that you learned and like values today? Ab- absolutely. 100%. Uh, uh, Don James, fairly uh, inspirational leader, but also just a master at organizational design. Right. And so I think, you know, I've really modeled a lot of our team building, and I have my whole career really out of that basic fun, f- fundamental team building aspects that he put together within his teams. Okay. Both his coaching teams, the players, how that was integrated, the communication. Uh, setting expectations, high goal setting, you know, those types of things really all came directly from him. That's awesome. And did you consider pro at all? Was that even in the cards or you just moved on? You know, uh, I did. I went to the combine and uh, I was a long snapper. So that mm-hmm. was kind of my specialty. That's cool. And, That's an uh, interesting position. Back in the day, I thought that might be the easiest way to go, but very tough road. And uh, I did not did not make it, mm-hmm. uh, but I have no regrets. Had a great time. Oh, no, absolutely, man. I think that's cool. So after college, you kind of got yourself a cushy finance job, right, at Goldman Sachs. Is that yeah. what was going on for a while? You know, I, I, I grew up thinking I needed to do something other than restaurants. I grew up in the right. restaurant space and thought that that was the nice, professional, tidy job that I needed to go do and realized real quickly that I did not like it at so all. So it wasn't for you. You oh, thought yeah. it was something you needed to go do, and so you tried it. I tried it. Went I was there six, seven months, eight months maybe, and I moved back and I picked up a bartending job and just I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the people and the pace and, and everything about the restaurant business. And um, at the time, um, newly married, young child, and uh, my wife thought I was absolutely nuts. I think most people would think you're absolutely yeah. nuts. Yeah. To leave a cushy job like that and go and bartend with, with a new child and a new wife and stuff yeah. like that. Had to have been taking a pay cut at the time. Took a huge I, pay I cut, imagine. but uh, but I was happy. And I, and my wife, after a little while, realized that. She could see very it, supportive, yeah. You yeah. Know. So, it, it, you know, luckily it worked out. And it, I think it's um, a lot of us in the restaurant business have similar stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all come for different reasons, but we get hooked by the same thing, and that's just a drive to – to work with people, to build teams, to work in a service-oriented environment where um, you can really make a difference every day and you see the, your, the difference that you make every day, right? So it's not like you're working to close a deal or to put together a deck where it might take days or weeks or months. Like, you know right. that day yeah, you how you see performed. The difference. Yeah. And I really like that. So that eventually led to the Ram Restaurant Group in Washington where you worked for 20 years and rose to managing partner um, t- tell me a little bit about that experience and what exactly that, that was. Yeah, that was great. That, that was an offshoot of the pub and tavern company that my father and a partner had started in 1971. Okay. And uh, really had the opportunity to start from the ground up and work my way through it. And that's where I joined after bartending. I went with bartending at one of those restaurants okay. and just stayed with it. And at some point in time, the concept morphed and changed from a pub tavern concept into a casual dining concept. Okay. Ultimately, through a lot of the initiatives that, that a few of us were putting forth, got into the brewery space. Right. And that was a fun time. That really transformed the business in a number of ways, financially and, and just uh, interest and, and intrigue 
around that growing industry back in the day. I mean, you've got to remember, this is in the mid-90s. Oh, it was early just 90s about to pop off. Yeah. Was, it, was, it was limited to Salem, Oregon oh, yeah. and Colorado. Yeah. Those were the craft beer places. And we, we took a hold of that and figured out, you know, how can we put that in our restaurants in a meaningful way? And in some cases, it was interesting. We were early. We came down here in Texas, and we had the Humperdinks brand. Right. And we put breweries in Humperdinks, and when people thought a craft beer was Shinerbach. Yeah, Shiner was around maybe St. Arnold, probably not even St. Arnold. No, nothing. Arnold. That wasn't around yet. Absolutely. It was super early. Wow. And there was a high pushback. People weren't ready for it, right? And um, so it's funny how we were on the cutting edge of something, we were too early. Well, how'd you know? How'd you know it was going to be a big thing? If everybody else was saying, you know, the consumer was saying, we're not ready for. We started like looking that. at things like coffee. Yeah. And people for years, coffee had, you know, people had, had consumed Folgers coffee, right? right? And now all of a sudden, you started seeing Starbucks and some of these gourmet coffee shops, and it was a common everyday drink in coffee, but people were doing it locally. So we we knew there was a transformational shift. We also know pre-prohibition, how how vibrant the distilling and brewing That's industry was. That's a good point. And that prohibition crushed it. And so we, we had this feeling that it was going to come back. So, you know, it's just interesting to me, though, to, to have that foresight. Because, yes, you were correct. In coffee with Starbucks and stuff, some of that craft and that artisanal branding was, was starting to happen and people taking more care and, like, what they were putting into their body. But that was really one of the only examples. Right. And, you know, now, you know, there, there's a million examples of Donuts, all of that. cupcakes. So I mean, you name anything, it, right? Like, in the makeup. I mean, literally yeah. anything. Right. And beer was one of, like, the second or third thing to, to happen there. And so it's really interesting that you really just kind of gambled a lot on that that was going to revolutionize the, yeah. the beer industry a little bit. No, we were we were fortunate. And again, I, I have a saying, I would rather be lucky than smart any day. And I think we were we were lucky in that regard. So talk about being tapped as that. And I guess we can kind of like meld this with the history of Hop Dottie a little right. bit. So in 2016, you were tapped to be the, the new CEO of Hop Dottie. The company was founded in 2010, correct? Yes. And so we they had the South Congress location over here. That was the first location. They added two more in Austin. Um, so yeah, and then they, they kind of wanted to, to grow, right? right? And they didn't really, you know, it was four owners. Talk about the history of them a little bit and then talk about how that led to you being tapped as yeah. CEO. Yeah, no, I, look, I think, uh, so you said it started in 2010. Uh, four insanely creative but but highly different folks got together. Uh, a guy, a Chuck, and two Larrys. Okay. Um, guy Villavaso, Larry Foles, Chuck Smith, and Larry Perdido. Larry Foles and Guy Villavaso uh, have been really the core drivers behind a lot of really famous brands that a lot of people know today. They, they, they cut their teeth. Their, their first one to really pop was Z Tejas back in the days. First unit was right over here off of very, uh, very popular place. We used to go all the and, time. And those guys, they, they worked that concept. They worked that brand. Uh, during that time, they had a couple of young up-and-comers in Chuck Smith and Larry Perdido that happened to work with them at Z Tejas. Wow. And they got successful. Chuck and Larry Perdido did, and they kind of went off and did their own things. Guy and Larry continued to do their own things, which led them to Eddie V's. Yeah. Which, again, the first one down the here one in downtown, Austin. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that's a massive success story. They, they grew that to... I think it was 11 restaurants before they were, you know, wooed away by Darden Restaurant Group oh, to, is that to what sell happened? to Darden. 
Um, and, and then they've grown incredibly um, great concepts here in Austin, such as ATX Cocina, Red Ash, yeah. Italia. Yeah. Uh, they have the Roaring Fork, Salty Sow. Oh, I didn't realize. Uh, oh, I, Tumble love, 22. I love Salty Sow. The Salty yeah. Sow, great. Yeah, man. Uh, Tumble 22, which is an insanely great uh, fried chicken joint off of Burnett Road. Oh, if I, you I haven't have seen that chance one. To go up there. But insanely creative, insanely talented folks. Um, and what happened in 2010 is the, the four founders hadn't worked together as a group for a while, right? They all kind of went off in their own ways. And they, got, they met back at a coffee shop and they said, gosh, it'd be fun to do something together. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are you guys into? What do you think the next cool evolving phase is? Interesting. And one of them threw out burgers, doing burgers in a different way. You know, Shake Shack had launched and they were doing burgers in a slightly different way. And they thought that the, the premium burger space might be a good play. And uh, Guy and Larry, being super entrepreneurial and opportunistic, uh, had been snooping around real estate. They're, they're, they're good real estate folks. And they saw a space on South Congress that they had been talking about, and they didn't really know what they would put in there. Uh, and when they met for coffee, this kind of idea was hatched. And we have some of the original notes I could show you where they were sketching ideas for oh, this yeah. concept. That's always fun. And South Congress hopped out. He was born. Wow. And started out super humbly. And, and they started out with this idea, you know, they don't necessarily create restaurants and concepts that they think, oh, we could scale and build a hundred of these. Right. They create one-offs. The That's idea was kind really of a one-off, yeah. Correct. Wow. So that was created as a one-off and, um, you know, things have slightly changed since then, but that was how it got its start. So you mentioned Shake Shack and yes, there were several, P. Terry's, right. there were several of those elevation in, in the quality of the ingredients and, you know, hand cut fries and some of that stuff that were starting to happen, rumblings of that in Austin, kind of, you know, around Texas. Um, so that was kind of there. You were there. It was like their take on that. Right. It's a kind of an elevated version of a Shake Shack. If, if right. you ask me, I think the ingredients are a little bit better. The, the buns are freshly baked and stuff like that. So, I mean, you're, you're getting almost a higher quality product. It's not fast casual. I wouldn't necessarily call it right? I mean, how would you describe? You, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, look, I think we, we, we ride that line between casual dining and fast casual. You kind of created your own category almost. We did. Yeah. And, you know, part of that was just born out of being in Austin, right? Austin is a little bit different, you yeah. know, it's, you know, you've got some iconic brands in Austin, um, that their service model and their product offerings aren't too different, right? There's a lot of barbecue joints where people are used to standing in lines, You've got Torchy's Taco that kind of created that whole, uh, we're part of creating that whole segment with a bar, but it's fast casual. And so it was really born a combination of providing a better burger and a better product experience, having a bar, Mm -hmm. because a bar was a big part, they thought of keeping it different and unique and differentiated. Um, Having those shakes. And, and yeah, and there's things like shakes, but they, they were very careful. They, they didn't want to necessarily create a, a kiddie burger bar. They wanted to create this adult burger bar. Right. Um, and so today we still try to stay true to those roots, uh, but we do serve a lot of families. And so yeah. we're, we're not going to say, hey, you can't come in. Um, but it's it's that mentality that it was designed to be a burger bar. Well, and there are certain places, too, and the, and the types of places that remain successful and are able to be scaled into something much grander than maybe you even expected, that when you walk in, there's a certain experience, and it's unlike other places. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that the first time I kind of went to P. Terry's, you know, back when they opened. It, they were more like fast casual, but like a cooler version of fast casual. Right. And then the first time I went to Hop Dottie, I worked on South Congress in 2012, 
my family came to visit. I went and showed them the office, and right down the street was Hop Dotty. Hadn't been yet, so we went and checked it out. Line around the door, you know, like you were saying earlier, that's, you know, a lot of locals might not want to wait in line all right. day, but when they're with their family, they're willing to do it to show them the cool spot. And so we waited. It was fun. It's like an experience, man. Yeah. You just enjoy it. And the fan, you know, we're waiting. We're looking at the menu. We get inside, and it's just like this hip this very, it's a very hip, like cool environment, very Austin, right there on South Congress. And yeah, from you know, the, the food was phenomenal. I'll never forget that. The food yeah. was really great. I sent my brother uh, uh, a text message showing him when the, the College Station one opened up because right. he goes to A&M. Right. He's a huge fan. We always talk about how Daddy at my house. Yeah. But yeah, so I think when you can create an environment like that and then like an experience like that, you almost can't even plan to do it. It's a very hard thing to do. Yeah, and it and just kind of happened with you guys. Eddie, that's exactly right. It, this was not planned. They yeah. did not anticipate the success. I mean, I think they thought it would be successful, but not near uh, to what it's what to what's materialized today. Right. You know, the story that you just tell me about, you know, the line at South Congress and the, the tourism and, and the, the locals, you know, is absolutely right. I would tell you that we see 50% of our uh, guests are in there are from out of town. Yeah. They just happen to be with a local, right? Someone that says, hey, I've got something so cool. I want to show you. We I want you to experience Hop Dottie yeah. together. And what happens is those people leave Austin and they go to Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, yeah. Newport Beach, wherever. And what's what we've seen as we've grown is, you know, we go to we go to Houston. We open up in a in a in an interesting location in Houston. I don't think it's a very good location. And we opened up People know hugely popular. They, yeah. they know we're there. They know they, the brand. And, and it's kind of surprised everyone to say, my gosh, how did people know that Hop Dottie, what, what we were? And it was because of this tourism around South Congress and the people going back and saying, hey, there's finally a Hop Dottie in my city. And that's so interesting because you're right. That probably wasn't the founder's original. That would be, they would be geniuses if that was their exactly. idea and they somehow executed that. Right. So it just happened because it's just such a great brand, you know? It just happens. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with you know, there's hand cut fries and there's, there's like those thick shakes and like the bar program is really kind of sophisticated and cool. Um, but the signature burgers, uh, are themselves are unlike things you see in most, mm-hmm. uh, burger restaurants right. period. Um, what are some of the more popular things that, that you have on the menu that, that people like to get? Yeah. Do those change over, over the years or do you all kind of stick with the staples? So we, we have a, we have a core set of offerings that have been with hop daddy from, from day one, uh, and the, our menu strategy is really, you know, making sure that we, we offer those core brand defining items that are f- familiar burgers, just done in an unfamiliar way. Okay. Right. So our ahi tuna burger. Yep. Right. Um, we grind and grill, you know, sushi grade tuna right. and we put it on a very unique bun set with, you know, a, a house made teriyaki, some wasabi ginger, uh, these nori chips, and, and we do it in a way that, yeah, it's a, it's a burger, but it's a tuna burger built differently than most people do. And, you know, we're, we're kind of fanatics about how we build those burgers and the creativity that go into those burgers. Right. In fact, recently, we, we took some steps. We were having problems with a distributor of getting these nori chips in. And nori chips is kind of fried seaweed. And so we, we, this, we were faced with this challenge, like, how do we get the nori chips in? We decided to take it off of our menu. Okay, okay. the backlash oh, that we saw from people was <laughs> unheard of. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that people didn't have our office address. I mean, it was it, 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 people. So we realized the the power that these these products have with our guests, 
that relationship is super strong. So September 23rd, for those of you out there, we're bringing the ahi tuna awesome. burger back. We found a awesome. new source for our nori chips. It's costing us a ton of money. We're not going <laughs> to raise the price on the burger. We're just eating it. We're doing it because it's the right thing to That's do. That's awesome. So we have this backbone, but I think most people that come into Hop Daddy, believe it or not, order some form of a classic cheeseburger. That that's that's the most popular, right? And I think yeah. sometimes it's because it's the easiest and people can't decide, so they go to the classic and it's right. great and they're blown away with the quality and what have you. But the fact that we have these interesting builds, I think, gives us some culinary credibility that people they they love, right? Mm-hmm. They like the fact that you know, hey, if we used to have a saying, if it has fins, feathers, or hoofs. We'll grind it and grill it, and you'll find it a hop dot. That's cool. And we have been experimental, and so occasionally we will do these interesting builds just to show people that we can. And there's sub- certain people are more experiential and more risk takers, and they 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 want to try more experimentally than others, and others just want to come in and get their classic with bacon and cheese. And you yeah. know what? That's great. So we try to give a variety of options, um, and there's a trade off, as you can imagine. If we did everything. Right? We, we may not be able to do everything really, really well. So right. the fewer things we do, we know we can do well. So there is that fine line between we're not going to do something and do it halfway. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it really well. So that sometimes limits the creativity or right. you know the expansiveness of the menu because we, we, we want to ensure that we can do it really, really it's well. It's a deliberate menu. Yes. And you've, it's very carefully crafted, deliberate. And so, yeah, you can you can execute everything perfectly. Right. Um, and, yeah, talk about the BARD program a little bit. Yeah. You know, look, the BARD program allows us to match some of the creativity um, that we do with the food into the beverage section. And, you know, I think it is a point of differentiation. Is, is we as a company and as, as a brand, we look at that as a brand differentiator, Right. Where can you go get a great burger, local craft beer, great margaritas, great drinks? Um, so for us, it's a positioning statement. Um, we also think it makes our brand sticky from a, you know, like a use occasion. When are you going to come in and use a hop dotty? Having a bar, That's really true. you're going to use it more frequently for the times you want to go out and grab a beer with a buddy and grab a great burger. Or, you know, maybe your kids want to go out and they want to get a great burger, but you want to go grab your local favorite craft beer and you want to mm-hmm. sit in a bar. So it, it allows for some flexibility with how people use Hop Dotty. Um, and it allows us to, to still kind of maintain um, the core essence um, of the concept, which was originally meant to be this adult burger bar. Right. So Hop Dotty was open, obviously doing really, really well, probably better than they thought it would do originally when they first came up with it no but they had a lot of experience in the restaurant industry so they kind of knew what they were doing but you know customers were lining up around the building and they were they were starting to expand and they had locations and in austin several a lot of people would think you know the layman someone like me might wonder why why bring on a ceo right if you're doing so well and things are expanding you know at at a natural pace kind of and you know, you're getting a great customer base. Why would you need to bring on um, someone like you? Right. So, yeah, talk about kind of that intersection with the, the yeah, founders and, and you and how you were brought on and why you were brought on. You know, I've been, I've been, I don't know if it's fortunate or lucky or cursed or whatnot, but I've, I've had the opportunity to work in founder-driven organizations most of my career. And, you know, founder dri- founders by nature are, they're entrepreneurial, they're risk takers, right? Or they, they wouldn't be they wouldn't be founders of something if they weren't entrepreneurial and taking risks and being bold and and putting everything on the line. And generally, founders that create something great are good because of the creative process that they go through to 
to identify a niche that's being underserved or do something in a different way that is compelling to people. Okay. And so they've got a skill set. And, and I think at some point in time, uh, as they grew, like most founders grow, you go from you know, one restaurant or one location to two to three to four to five, they, their skill set is in creating and developing and tweaking and changing, not necessarily in building teams, growing or scaling in any type of methodical way. And most founders are hands-on. They, they do. They work with their hands. They're right. not necessarily delegators and organizational architects. They're, they're doers, right? And so at some point in time, you run out of hands. You run out of hours in the day to go visit locations and to lead those locations. And you need to start thinking about how do I build a team? How do I organize and be the architect of um, people that can ensure that these restaurants run the way that I want them to run. And so I think that at some point in time, and I think with our founders, they'll will probably tell you, it was some place between six and seven restaurants where they felt like they lost that ability to really lead and drive and control as they scaled. And, and so, you know, um, they were introduced to me through a, 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 a financial partner um, and that's really, I think, what my skill set is. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a. I'm not a creator. You know, I think uh, if I have a talent, it's in its ability to spot talent, to build teams, to develop processes, and to org- put some organizational discipline and control to execute to what the founder's original intent was or is. And as you grow and scale, there's a lot of challenges along the way, and people are forced with a whole series of trade-offs, right? right? Like distribution. Definitely. If I'm dealing with a really small um, pork farmer, uh, pork rancher, and um, I utilize 100% of his supply, I've got to find a new supply chain. Yep. Well, that might mean a quality difference because you know I really love this pork, and I want to support his ranch, but I can't. So I think it's just... it's you know, scaling is growing to exacting and specific standards and, you know, putting more disciplined processes in place that allow you to ensure that it's being executed the way it was designed. And so you had mentioned when they, when they originally created Hobdotty back in 2010, it was, it was designed to be kind of a one-off. They eventually obviously changed that model and they opened up some more locations. You said around six or seven, they brought you on. Um, when they brought you on, were you brought on to, had they decided they were, okay, let's let's really kind of scale and expand now, or were they just trying to maintain what they had because yeah. it was just, you know, it's a, that's a big, that's already a medium-sized company. That's a lot to deal with. You're right, Eddie, and I, I think it was a little bit of both. I think there was this, um, the primary driver was, you know, how do you know? I mean, one of the interview questions that they kept coming back, especially Larry Foles, kept coming back is, Jeff, how do you know? How do you know every day our buns are perfect? How do you know every day the burgers are seasoned properly? How do you know our fries are nice and white and crisp? You know, how do you know? And 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 that that became apparent that the real need was making sure that the the, the restaurants that we had uh, in place were run extraordinarily well, right? Mm-hmm. And we take that approach. We're going to build it one at a time. So I think that was the first objective. Secondarily was, hey, look, we obviously have something here that people desire, that they want. How do we, how do we grow that? Should we grow that? Do we want to grow it? You know, there's a whole bunch of questions founders have to ask about why grow. 
you know, I can tell you these founders are not driven. They're not driven by greed. They're not driven by, hey, let's grow it to sell it. Um, I think the, at the core of it, and this is really where we aligned, and this is really where I said I want to be part of that, well, they want to grow opportunities for people. That's awesome. And, and that, that one thing alone struck me as unique and different. Here are some guys that have been very, very successful in business. It wasn't about the money. It was about doing something different mm-hmm. for team members and for guests. They get a lot of pride and a lot of satisfaction for walking into a hop dotty and, and mingling with guests. And, you know, um, and eventually they'll know that these are the founders and it, they're really proud of yeah. what they've created. And I think that's what drove them. So we're not necessarily still today. We're, you know, we're not growing for growth sake other than to create growth and opportunities for people and to continue to, to kind of expand that hop dotty influence, um, of great burgers and a really cool bar and with great team members. So you kind of want a natural organic grow. I'm assuming you pass up on locations and stuff like that all the time. All the time. Um, at this point, you probably have people coming to you to, to get your brand in their shopping center, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to, that's kind of where you come in, just making the right decisions and the right moves and knowing which state to go into. I, I find that interesting. You know, I look at the map on, on your website. You just have a big map of all the locations. Mm-hmm. You're down in Florida. You're up in, you're in Colorado. Yes. You're, um, in a lot of just... A lot of states right. now, something I didn't even realize. And uh, are those very kind of strategic moves and, you know, based on the market? How does that work? You know, I'm smiling. Uh, yes and no, right? I think that um, we, we're learning in, as we grow. I think some of the original site selection was born out of, uh, you know, number one was in SoCo, then two went to Anderson Lane up in Austin. Number three was up at the Preston Center in Dallas, and then we cool. made this move over to California. Yeah. So what? What? Why'd you do that? When you know, that jump? look, and I, I joke around with the founders a little bit on this, but it really was born out of where they wanted to be and where they, you know, where they lived. Okay. Um, you know, they all kind of wanted a hop dotty near them. Uh, and part of that was so they could massage it and grow with it and work on it on a daily basis and not have to all fly to Austin to work on it together. So there was some really good sound logic thinking and, and they were all good sites and they all worked. But what we realized when I came in is it's a really hard way to grow mm-hmm. when you can't grow with any density in any one market, right? From okay. an overhead perspective, from a logistics and a transportation and a supply chain perspective, it was really tough and, and there was really no strategy at that time, it was all kind of, it was more entrepreneurial, right? Okay. It was opportunistic. They yeah. found a great real estate deal and, oh, that'd be really cool to have a hop dotty here. And that was, that's not wrong. It was just, that's the way they chose to go about it. Um, and then I think when, when I arrived, we tried to take a more disciplined approach to, hey, how are we going to grow? What does again, it look yeah. like? Right. So look, we're still learning that today. You know, we have 33 restaurants open today and we're still learning. And, and, we still make mistakes. I make mistakes every day. Our team does, but we, we kind of take this attitude of best today, better tomorrow. And we're going to learn everything that we can and learn from our mistakes and try to do a better job. But again, try to be a little bit more intentional, still being entrepreneurial and opportunistic and still try to keep that scrappy entrepreneurial mindset. Cause I think that's, that's really healthy, Definitely. but just make sure we do it in a, in a methodical way. Um, do the restaurants change at all as you move into different markets? Is the menu the same everywhere you go? Or does that kind of evolve? How does that work? It's a timely question. We just talked about that. Right now, they currently are the same. 
we feel that they should be, you know, 75% of it should be kind of a Hopdotty brand backbone. 25% should be very regional. Like we know certain chilies are very popular in Colorado that are different than the chilies that we have here in Texas. So we should look to source those local ingredients okay. in those different markets that people know and, and really give them what they expect. That's cool. And you, and so you're in all the major cities in Texas, I would imagine. Are you in Houston and Dallas and, and all that? Um, San Antonio now, Austin. Do you have any like markets that you, I mean, you said when you would go to Dallas and you would go to Houston, people knew the brand, which right. is like something you might not necessarily be expecting. Right. I thought you might have to build that a little bit more. Are there any markets maybe out of state that you uh, have grown to really love and appreciate and really happy that you're there? You know, Yes, there are. I think there are a lot of places. We, we look for some psychographic and demographic information that kind of fits Austin, right? So okay. like we're in Nashville, Tennessee. I think there's a lot of similarities personally between Nashville and Austin. We do really well in Nashville. I love Nashville. I think Nashville is a great city for Hopdotty. A lot of similarities. Oh, man. Denver. Denver's a really cool, fun city. Again, a lot, psychographically, demographically, very similar, right? So I think, yeah, there are some that you know, uh, the mindset of our core consumer is shared amongst in those certain markets. And I think the opportunity for Hopdotty is how do we grow and expand and be really cool in Orlando or be really yeah. cool in um, um, Oklahoma City or, you know, something that doesn't necessarily have the same demographic psychographics. Well, I'm interested, are you able to kind of nail down that demo? You mentioned earlier, like the South Congress location. That could be any number of t types of people that go in there, just tourists with their you know, families, right. with kids. It could be a date. It could be just buddies wanting to watch a game. I mean, it could be anything. Right. Is it difficult to kind of nail down what that is? And I'm sure it changes by neighborhood, you know? It, it does. We have a pretty good idea uh, of who our guest base is. I mean, we can track it from credit card spends, and we go back and reverse append it to, you know, the mosaic segmentation studies, not to get all technical. But we, we can tell you the psychographic demographic um, characteristics of our guests based on this data. Mm -hmm. And it kind of matches with intuitively what we think, you know, so we, we kind of have a, a term for our guests and, and we label them into passionates. Is that what those guys back in those, those computers are doing? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're back there, Some of them the are data. just, yeah. you know, what do they like? What do they want? What do they spend? What, why do they come to Hopdotty? Why don't they? And all these things, just because we want to make sure that we're giving people what they expect. So we really think that our average guest is, you know, they're, they're creative, they're independent, they're curious, they're adventuresome, they like to travel. Um, you know, they do have some discretionary income that they like to spend on something that's better. They're not looking for commoditized, um, just something that's going to fill them. They're looking to enrich their life or enrich their dining experience with a new, unique way to do something. Um, they're not necessarily looking for convenience, although they appreciate convenience, but they're willing to go out and they're looking for a better experience, and they're willing to, to go out of their way for that experience. Right. You know, for example, um, when we take a look at the average drive times and what, how long an average guest will drive to go That's to Hopdotty, it's like twice as long as most fast casual places. 100%. You're more of a destination place. You're more People of a destination place. are willing to make, make the effort. So, yeah, we still want to be convenient. We still want to be affordable. We still want to be all those things. But the core consumer will want to come find us. And I, I would imagine, too, you know, Austin's a very innovative city, and a lot of times they have things here in Austin before they have it in other places. Um, so I would imagine as Hop Dotties are popping up in these other markets that it's one of the first types of 
you know, that, that restaurant there. And so mm-hmm. you're still getting a lot of people early mm-hmm. when they don't have that type of thing there yet. And right. so I think that's really cool. No, it's funny. We hear from a lot of our guests that everyone wants a hop dotty in their, their city. Yeah. Right. And, and we're looking at that. I mean, we put one in, like you said, in college station, um, you know, we're looking at, at towns across Texas, you know, Lubbock, um, Midland, Odessa, Corpus Christi, you know, there's a lot of places where I think people would love us to go. And, and our challenge is, is how do we do that right. and still deliver a great experience? Do it responsibly. Yeah, without absolutely. Just, yeah. Saying, you can't say yes to everything. Uh, I will tell you, I, I went out to college in Lubbock and you would absolutely kill it. <laughs> out in Lubbock. We've then. heard that. I right? can tell you that. Yeah. Um, yeah, dude. So what's, you know, 30, what's 37 locations, seven states right now. What's, what's on the horizon for you guys? Are we, I mean, it, it looks like expansion is a thing that's happening. Uh, it's very methodical and you're putting a lot of thought into it, but it is, looks like it's something that is happening. I mean, it's happened a lot in the past five years, uh, since you've been brought on and, uh, yeah. So what do y'all, what do y'all have going on in the future? You know, we're passionate about keeping the original core promise and that the founders had and, and still do have, and that is creating opportunities for people. And I know that sounds a little bit awkward, but you know, like we're, we're business people. Uh, we're in business to, to make money. Um, we currently are reinvesting a hundred percent of our profits back in growth. That's awesome. Um, there are no distributions. There's no dividends. I mean, we're, we're hundred percent invested crazy. in growth. And it's really for this fact, if we want to create opportunities for people, we have built a talent pipeline within our restaurants currently at 33, but we have 30, you know, we have another four planned this next year. Okay. Um, so take us to 37, but, but we've got, you know, we have all general managers in house already that are slated for those restaurants. We have managers that we're promoting into those spots. So that's cool. The excitement that that builds for, for any of you who have, who have, built teams and have grown businesses, you know that that excitement is so intoxicating for people as you're growing because they know they can go from a server to a manager or from mm-hmm. a manager to a general manager or from a general manager to a regional manager. Definitely, They see those opportunities being real. And our promise is we've got to find those opportunities for our people, right? If we ever stop that cycle, um, there's going to be a whole class of people yeah. right that are going to be disappointed because yeah. they don't get that next opportunity so it's it's a whole other thing to it's think a about, self-fulfilling yeah. you know that flywheel i think we've got it going to the point where the flywheel is going on its own and and our challenge is to stay disciplined mm-hmm. to not sell out to not open up just to open up to make sure that we we've got the right team members and the right locations, the right product off product offerings at the right prices. We're staying true to our core values and how we lead. Stay true to the core brand pillars of the the, the quality of ingredients, the, the 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 quality that we're putting in front of people, and and do it all together, right? So growing without sacrificing those core pillars internally or externally is is really what motivates us and. You know, I think that there's a lot of challenges in our business, but there's also a ton of opportunities. If you look at off-premise, you know, the third-party delivery companies and how how much that is shifting from on-premise to off-premise. Right? Yeah. So, so we're part of that conversation, and we're trying to evolve and say, hey, if people are going to enjoy Hop Dottie at home, how do we make that a great Hop Dottie experience out of a box versus in our four walls? How do we replace that? But how do we give them the same Hop Dottie wow when they're opening up their bag of food sitting in front of their television as they are when they're in our cool, fun bars. So, you know, that's the challenge. And so this whole innovation 
is super challenging. And I think in our space, we're going to see more continued innovation in the next five years than we've seen in the last 10. It's awesome. Because it's, it's triggering. It's going so fast with facial recognition, with um, plain English um, uh, ordering, capturing, with um, you know the data that we get about our guests and who they are. It, it's, it's invasively scary in one hand. But it's super exciting on the other because I can imagine a day when people walk into HopDotty, and I'm not saying we've got plans to do this, but just think about if our team knew who walked in the door and what they ordered last time and what they liked, yeah. we could better personalize an experience for De- them yeah. based on this technology and reduce these friction points that we currently have. So we're excited about future technology and innovation uh, and just all of the energy that our growth is propelling. Um, just from a, a, a CEO and a management perspective and, and building teams and building a company and, and helping it expand, the R word, recession, mm-hmm. people discussed that kind of recently. Mm-hmm. Do you have to change anything and, and, and kind of make any like strategic changes, it, it, just the idea that something like that right. might happen? Or do you just kind of keep doing the same things and, and you know, whatever Here's my, happens, happens? Right. Here's my take on that. Great companies shouldn't have to do anything in a recession. Now, with that being said, it'd be naive to think that you continue to do what you've always done in a different environment and get the same results. So I think, you know, one of our core values is being open-minded. I think we have to be open-minded into how things shift and change. I think we're positioned well if there is a recession or a downturn, and that is we provide high utility, high value. You know, we are at a slightly higher elevated price point, but I think there's value associated with that price point. And so to the extent that that value, the, the, that delta is strong, we're, we're positioned well, right? Um, you might get people that trade down into our price point more frequently in, in, a, in a recession. Interesting. Um, but, you know, our position is, is you know, not to have to skimp on labor or quality of products or anything um, you know, we might have to look at different product offerings that fit different price points if people right. are you know, spending less and those things. But, you know, again, I think if we're positioned well, we shouldn't have to change much. So, yeah, we have a lot of potential entrepreneurs listening to the podcast. I'm just big fans of, of you and HopDotty and things like that. People that want to maybe open up a restaurant one day or open up a burger joint. Um, do you have a piece of advice that you would offer someone with your years of experience and just kind of running teams? And You know, what I, what I tell people is... The day that your passion meets what you objectively deem that you're good at, you're in a really good space to take some risks. Because I think your passion helps fill in the gaps and it provides the motivation for you to figure things out along the way. Restaurant business is a tough business. Any people business, any business can be tough. But there are some challenges within the restaurant space. And I think that passion, if there's true passion there, that provides the 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 will to fight through a lot of those challenges i would also say know what you're getting into and be smart reach out to people that have been there and done that before and ask them for pitfalls in the road ask them for things that you should watch out for it can be an intoxicating business and it can be a sobering business the next day so go into it with both eyes open do your homework you know, know, know the business side of things. I, I see some people get into the restaurant business because they're passionate about it, cooking and people tell them they've got the best lasagna recipe they've ever had. Mm-hmm. And although that might be a great reason to open up a restaurant, you know, but take it a step further, right? How are you going to make money in this business? What's your model? What's your business plan? And not, you don't have to get too complicated, but just know the facts 
so that when you open up, you don't have any surprises and you don't need to deviate from that core reason why you decided to get into it in the first place. Absolutely. So you can be true to it. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, Great level of insight from someone who's been so successful in this industry. So yeah, Jeff, thanks for having me out here. Eddie, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Building Something Out of Nothing. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, you can email me at ed, that's ed6238 at gmail.com. As always, you can visit either one of our locations seven days a week. Our roastery and first location is over at Warehouse 5 at 1333 Buena Vista Street. If you'd like to serve Shotgun House coffee roasters in your restaurant, cafe, or office, shoot us a quick email at orders at shotgunhouseroasters.com or contact me anytime at 254-913-9031. Our intro music is provided by the Delicate Boys from Austin, Texas. You can find this song and their entire album on Spotify. Thanks.